Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. This week we start a seven-week Lenten series. It's called Our Women Amazed Us, based upon the words in Luke 24, verse 22. For the next seven weeks, we'll have seven women authors take us through the weeks of Lent and Easter Sunday. The essay this week is called The Grace of Bewilderment by Rebecca Lyman for the first Sunday in Lent, February 21, 2010. Rebecca is the Garrett Professor of Church History Emerita from the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, Berkeley, and an Episcopal priest. She's written various books and articles on ancient Christianity and lives with her husband and children in Woodside, California. Raised in the Midwest, she has a particular interest in landscape and spirituality. The Grace of Bewilderment by Rebecca Lyman In his book, The Wild Places, Robert McFarlane describes his journey to explore the last pieces of wilderness left along the fringes of the British Isles. Centuries of settlement and industrialization have domesticated most land, so he pushed himself out to Scottish islands in the top of Welsh mountains. The result of this experience was not what he had anticipated. He writes in his book, My early vision of a wild place as somewhere remote, historyless, unmarked, now seemed improperly partial. I had learned to see another type of wilderness, to which I had once been blind, the wilderness of natural life, the sheer force of ongoing organic existence, vigorous and chaotic, not about asperity, but about luxuriance, vitality, and fun. The weed in the crack of the pavement was a wild sign. McFarland's search for wilderness, set apart paradoxically, opened his eyes to the common presence of nature everywhere underfoot. Our modern attraction to wilderness is often the heightening and clarification of self through natural beauty in the absence of civilization. But in the Bible, wilderness is not a national park. It's a place of isolation and death. Infested with demons and apparently without God, this untamed and unknown place was entered only at a great risk. To be in the wild is where one can become lost and die. And so this is the root of our word, bewildered, which goes back to the physical and emotional state of being lost. In the lethal hall of mirrors described in the Gospel of Luke, the devil tempts Jesus in extremity, only to claim what is rightfully his as a beloved of God, food, authority, and safety. When Jesus quotes scripture in reply, perhaps he's not the clever rabbi, but rather the lost child who clings to the only presence of God in this dreadful place, the internalized word of the Spirit that pleads for us when we cannot. Luke tells us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to begin his ministry. 
Given his fondness for natural images of the luxuriance of lilies and the vitality of grass, perhaps Jesus' experience in the wilderness opened his eyes to the unity between the liminal and the ordinary. The renewing presence of God which shatters our divisions of sacred and secular, pure and profane, life and death. The gift of faithfulness from the wilderness to Jesus was not a heroic will, but the confident freedom of dwelling with the sparrows, the lilies, the beggars, and the brides in God's love, come what may. Our forty days of Lent begin and end in a wilderness. From the dialogue with the devil to the final bewildering triad of betrayal at the Last Supper, fear in the garden, and loneliness on the cross. Western institutional religion, for good reason, domesticated wilderness spirituality. The rule of St. Benedict, for example, was especially written to prevent individual heroics and failures. Lives of the desert saints were collected as a sort of spiritual safari to view the marvels of the resident big-game hunters. When at the Reformation, lay people finally got their hands on the Bible, holy wisdom became encased in preaching and morality. And yet, no system protects us from life. As McFarland discovered in returning from the wilderness to the sidewalk, we live daily in the midst of the same vitality, unpredictability, and regeneration of natural life. We can be lost and found, or live or die anywhere. We dwell in a wilderness, but we are not alone. The best spiritual practices do not ultimately separate us from our world, but only separate us from our habits and assumptions that cause us to limit or doubt the divine presence. Finding God in the wilderness is finding God precisely everywhere we are afraid or lost. Just as ecologists have reframed our definitions of a separate romantic wilderness toward a broader care of all nature, so too tr current trends in spirituality have reframed practices of sacred separation to open our eyes to the presence of God in the ordinary all around us. As Wes Jackson commented in defense of loving Kansas, either all the earth, earth is holy or none is. Either every separate Either every square foot of it deserves our respect, or none does. Bewilderment, then, can be an excellent preparation for Holy Week. Our yearly collective meditation on why bad things happen to good people, and how we can possibly embrace events we do not choose or understand. The liturgies from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday warn us to look within and without at brokenness and deliberate harm. Faith is about the courage to love when your heart is broken, the determination to hope when all the news is bad. The true foundation of our maturing spiritual lives, the true ground of our heartfelt and honest prayers, are the wilderness times which still live within our souls where we survived and found unexpected grace. For me, these were unexpectedly losing my mother, facing chronic illness of a loved one, 
or living in exile. These are not places I sought out. These life events found me, and I did not conquer them as much as learn through suffering and endurance and wonder to discern who were angels and what were wild beasts. I learned to give thanks and to find bread even in the stones. Scripture spoke for me when I could not speak for myself. This wilderness within ultimately sets us free. For here we encounter the mysterious, faithful, holy one. When our expectations are shattered, we receive the unexpected. We are bewildered by grace and finally find ourselves at home. Life itself is our wilderness and our holy habitat, the blooming desert and the fertile field. The love of the vitality of all life sent Thoreau in later years from philosophy to observing minute details of berries as part of his spiritual process. And after his famous voyage, Darwin devoted himself to the mysteries of underground lives of earthworms. It is not the devil who was in the details, but God himself, who brings life wherever we are. Bewildered by Grace, a guest essay by Rebecca Lyman. For books this week, I review David Kessler, The End of Overeating, Taking Control of the Insatiable American Appetite, New York, Rodell, 2009, 320 pages. David Kessler has been head of the FDA from 1990 to 1997, dean of the medical schools at Yale and UC San Francisco, and professor at Columbia Law School. But since food is no respecter of age, class, gender, or socioeconomic class, he admits that, like millions of people, he's firmly in the camp of the overeaters. He writes about himself, For much of my life, sugar, fat, and salt held remarkable sway over my behavior. I have lost weight, gained it back, and lost it again over and over and over. I have owned suits in every size. Why does Kessler speak for so many of us? Why does food hold such power over him when he does almost nothing else in his life on impulse? Across 48 very short chapters, Kessler describes dozens of scientific studies from the government, science, and medicine interviews with experts of all sorts, anecdotes from popular chain restaurants, and experiences from food industry conventions. People overeat and struggle with their weight not primarily because of a lack of willpower, genetics, metabolism, or even lack of exercise, says Kessler, even though these are important factors. Rather, our neurobiology has been effectively rewired by an avalanche of what one food industry executive calls the three points of the compass, sugar, fat, and salt. The food industry aggressively manipulates our minds and desires to exploit the biology of our brains. 
Artificial chemicals and relentless marketing lead to a psychological and physiological conditioning, making conditioned hyper-eating almost irresistible. As one food executive put it, everything that has made us successful is the problem. But we have a choice, and in the last part of his book, Kessler recommends a sort of behavior modification. Knowing what's going on in our brains and bodies is the first step, and Kessler's book is a huge help. We must recognize our vulnerability to human biology and food industry manipulation. Our susceptibility to biological reconditioning is not a character flaw, but in combination with the food industry, it is a powerful force. Kessler describes how he's learned to say no early and often, replace old habits with new ones, and summon alternate responses to all the cues, rewards, and feedback to which we've become accustomed with food. Food rehab, says Kessler, can conquer the super-stimulating nature of food, although it won't be easy. The best analogies might even be comparisons with the effort needed to conquer addictions of nicotine, alcohol, or even cocaine. This is an important book, practically written for a general audience, and deserving of a wide readership. David Kessler, The End of Overeating. And for film this week, I review Michael Jackson's This Is It from 2009. It goes without saying that Michael Jackson had few peers as a dancer and a singer. In addition, this documentary film also reveals the depth of his creative imagination, attention to detail in everything from lighting to guitar riffs and costume design, his work ethic, his sheer passion for performance, and, yes, the nuttiness which required the concert directors to tiptoe, bow, and scrape before his majesty. Michael Jackson's last major concert was way back in 1997. Then, in March 2009, he announced that he would do 50 concerts in London beginning on July the 8th, 2009. 800,000 tickets sold out within hours. From March until June 2009, the crew rehearsed. And then just eight days before, four, before full dress rehearsals began in London, Jackson died on June 25th. Kenny Ortega, the director of the concert, also directed this documentary film of the rehearsals, which was called from 100 hours of footage and never intended for public consumption. Watching Jackson rehearse does not give the impression of a sickly man. Rather, I was filled with awe, sadness, and inspiration at these final glimpses of a man whose life will always be remembered as both talented and tragic. Michael Jackson's This Is It. And finally, to begin the Lenten season, we've posted a poem by St. Ephraim of Syria from the 4th century. It's sometimes simply called Lenten Prayer, and in the Orthodox tradition is taken to embody the very spirit of Lent. 
St. Ephraim, Lenten Prayer O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. But grant rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, grant me to see my own transgressions, and not to judge my brother. For blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, February 21st, 2010, the first Sunday in Lent, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.